One of the reasons that evolutionary psychology is so controversial, right, is because a lot of people feel like applying evolutionary logic to social behavior, to human behavior, will justify it in some way. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Mahatma Gandhi once said, an eye for an eye will only make the whole world blind. In this episode, we talk with Adam Morris from Harvard University about his research into why, though punishment can help us learn to change our behavior in the future, people continue to engage in retaliation with little regard for its effectiveness. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Adam Morris. So I'm Adam Morris. Uh, I'm a third-year graduate student at Harvard currently, uh, studying psychology. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey. Uh, went to kind of a, like a kind of average, normal public high school. When I started my kind of academic path, I had no intention of going into psychology at all. It wasn't even on my radar. And I went in thinking that I was going to be a math major, actually, either math or philosophy. I was kind of torn between them. But uh, in the the spring of my of my freshman year. I just, on a whim, I sat in on the first lecture of a, a social psychology course that was taught by this guy, Fiery Cushman. And he was a kind of new professor at Brown. People didn't really know about him. Uh, and it was, it, I was just floored. It was the most amazing lecture I had I, been to in, in my whole life. So yeah, so I ended up uh, kind of joining his lab and working on a project with him. And then he, uh, and we had a, I worked with him for kind of the rest of my time in undergrad. And then he moved to Harvard. Uh, he got a position here. Uh, and he basically was like, hey, like, do you want to follow me to grad school? So <laughs> I was like, yes, please. <laughs> when most people think of natural selection, they might think of survival of the fittest, with small changes in individuals having big impacts on species, though only over very long periods of time. Adam's study concerns how natural selection and learning influences the evolution of social preferences for resolving conflicts. So we were interested in learning whether or not the study's emphasis on natural selection and evolution is simply an analogy. You know, across cultures, everywhere you look, people seem really obsessed with morality. The, the field was trying to answer the question of how, do, how does people's sense of morality work uh, what is its function? What does it do? What is it, What kind of things does it pick up on? I study kind of like much more basic decision-making stuff. Kind of from the beginning of evolutionary theory, the question of to what extent you should apply it to humans has been controversial. Uh, and, and that's no less so now. But most people think, at least most people in cognitive science and psychology, think that Right, humans or animals were no exception to the rule. And so even with the kind of incredibly complex behaviors that you see in humans, like especially around social phenomenon, that in principle, natural, natural selection, the same logic should apply. 
the, the mind, just like any other organ in the body, should be evolved to solve kind of specific problems. And the features that we see from it, uh, there's at least a good chance that their adaptations to kind of problems that that our ancestors faced in the you know in our ancestral conditions so so in that sense it's it's not an analogy right people it's it's a yeah it's a claim about natural selection in the same way that you know when people look at you know when darwin looked at finches now there's there's one caveat to that and maybe a really important one which is that it's pretty generally accepted at this point that there's two equally valid ways that you could interpret the logic or the, or the math behind natural selection when it comes to humans. So, and this is the kind of distinction people make between biological evolution and cultural evolution. Biological evolution uh, is just what you normally think of with natural selection. Genetic mutations lead to differential reproductive success and so on. But there's another way you could think about evolution, which is, cult which is called cultural evolution. And so there, the idea is that in, in a kind of a similar way, you could imagine that mutations in a sense that aren't genetic, ones that are successful could also spread throughout the population. With a better sense of how evolutionary theory can be applied to cognitive science, Ryan and I asked Adam for an example that supports this view of decision-making in human culture. A paradigmatic example of this is these people that live out in, kind of in tribes in the wilderness um, in all over the world. And they have very specific rituals that they do around cooking, for example. Like, I, I forget what it's called. I think that one of the examples is called, like, nixtamalization or something. I'm probably getting the exact term wrong. But basically, there was, in this one tribe, there was this whole process where for a certain type of food, they first, they built a fire and then they cooked the, the, the food in the ashes of the fire. And they did all these other things, like this very specific kind of process. And you ask them, why do you do this? Like, why don't you, I think it was like a nut. Like, why don't you just crack the nut open and eat it? Whatever. And nobody knows, right? They, you know, they, they give you some story that clearly is, you know, about, you know, some, I don't know if it was actually religious in this case, but they give you some story that's clearly kind of after the fact. But then you actually go and you look at the food they're eating. And it turns out that it would be poisonous if they didn't do the precise set of steps that they were doing to cook it. It's really crazy, and nobody, but nobody knows that. Nobody knows that that's in. Nobody in the group knows that that's what's going on. And so the explanation that people give for this, these people haven't genetically evolved to do something different than anyone else. It's 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 too recent. There, yeah, the I, evolution hasn't operated that quickly. But rather, the at some point somebody kind of randomly tried doing this, and then suddenly they were able to eat the food and were fine. And other people saw that and they picked it up, right, without knowing exactly why. And so in the kind of same way that these genes can just spread mechanistically that are successful, right, through the population, these, uh, they're often called memes instead of genes. <laughs> these memes, these like little ideas can spread in the same way. So that's, the, that's kind of the idea behind cultural evolution. In biological evolution, new species form, change, and may experience extinction. We wondered what role punishment was developed to serve among humans, as well as whether the desire to punish can be extinguished. If you believe in an evolutionary story of these things, then the reason that, that this behavior likes you know, such a strong desire to punish people who harm us, uh, if you believe that that is a product of natural selection, you know, either biological or cultural, then it was adapted to fill a niche 
for, for our ancestors, right? It was, it, was, it was kind of shaped for the conditions that our ancestors found themselves in. But of course, those conditions change and many of the, those behaviors are maladaptive now. So this is kind of, there's a clear answer for why things that seem maladaptive now that were actually adaptive in the past. So the question of how to extinguish them, I think there's two, I think there's two interesting questions actually there. The first is that, yeah, if you really believe that a behavior is maladaptive, how do you actually go about distinguishing, uh, extinguishing it? I think we don't really know, honestly, or at least I don't know. One of the things we tried to do in our paper was to model adaptive behavior, behavioral tendencies that evolution built into us, um, not as kind of fixed things, but rather as uh, intrinsic rewards, which is often how people experience them. An example of this would be like, you know, people, when people do evolutionary models, they typically model things like, you know, behaviors like eats apples, right? This is the example we use in our paper. But you could also imagine kind of modeling the more basic thing, which is that apples taste good to people, right? And that's why they end up eating them. And so you could imagine modeling something like, you know, loves the taste of sugar. And that's what evolution builds into someone rather than just the kind of fixed behavior of eating the apple. So if you think that's what's going on, right, that evolution, for example, kind of made taking revenge on someone, punishing someone intrinsically rewarding, then in a sense, all you have to do to overcome that is make it sufficiently bad, make it sufficiently punishing to, to do things like take revenge on people, you know, to punish them. Uh, like make, basically make the costs high enough so that they outweigh whatever that intrinsic reward is that, that evolution gave to us. Adam's study is grounded in the premise that natural selection sometimes operates on relatively rigid social reflexes, and other times on more flexible learned processes. Ryan and I wanted to better understand if these processes might play out in nature as well. Okay, so I'm gonna give an example from animals. So you could imagine, like imagine you put a rat in a cage, and there's, you know, there's two levers in the cage. And you just set it up arbitrarily so that if the rat pushes the right lever, it gets some food. And if it pushes the left lever, it gets some kind of shock. So it's, from what we know about rats, it's pretty clear that the rat will start pushing the lever with the food and ignore the lever with the shock. And so in some sense, you could, that's in a kind of non-social setting. That's an example of flexibility. The, the, the rat had no preconception about which lever to push. It adapted its behavior to the situation based on the feedback it got. So contrast that with something like like imagine trying to train a rat to move backwards away from the food. It's actually, it's really hard to do because it's kind of so built into the rat to just move forward towards food whenever it sees it. Even if it gets more food later, right? If it can walk away from it. So in that case, the, the, the rat's behavior right there, it wasn't, it wasn't contingent on the feedback it got from the environment. Because if it was, it would learn that if it moves away from the food, it gets more food. That that distinction between kind of your behavior being shaped, you know, being mold, molding your behavior to kind of fit whatever environment you're facing versus kind of sticking with the, what was in some sense a default, right? Without, but, but that's inflexibly, you know, that, that isn't adapted. It isn't molded to, you don't kind of mold in the moment to whatever uh, uh, environment you're facing. That's the kind of key distinction we were trying to draw between flexibility and rigidity. Rewards and punishments have long been explored through behavioristic experiments, such as those B. of Skinner first conducted in the late 1920s. We asked Adam to explain how flexibility and rigidity can operate within the social system that he studied, retaliation for theft. 
You can imagine the same kind of difference between flexible and rigid behavior, but in social settings. So an easy example, I think, is, is, is thinking of theft. So thieves, let's, let's take, take like a bike thief. Like a bike thieves are opportunistic. They'll steal from someone if they think they can get away with it. But someone who, you know, if, if they know that the guy is sitting in his house with a shotgun, you know, waiting for someone to try to steal his bike, that bike thief is probably going to leave him alone. Right. And so you can think of that. It's similar to the rat with the two levers. Oh, if I steal from Joe, then I end up, I get a new bike. Things are great. But if I steal from, you know, Mary, uh, things go horribly. She chases me away from the house with a crowbar. And so I won't do that. So I'll, I'll steal from Joe and not from Mary. And so that's a kind of, that's an example of flexibility. In contrast, it seems like other social behaviors aren't so flexible. You have all these cool examples in history of people going to crazy lengths to punish people, like to take revenge on those who've harmed them, even when it's way beyond, it'd be way beyond any gains they would actually get from deterring the person. So like in the, the Hatfields and the McCoys are this famous, these famous two families um, kind of in earlier times in America. They were neighbors and they got into this horrible, bloody feud where for, you know, for generations, literally, uh, one person would, one family would attack the other family, you know, that burn down their ranch or something or kill one of their family members. And then the other uh, family would go to crazy lengths to take revenge on the original family, even when it was, they knew that it would ultimately lead to retaliation again and it would be a total disaster. But it doesn't matter, right? They, they were so hell-bent on taking revenge. And so that seems like an example of inflexibility, right, of rigidity. Even though the kind of the gains clearly don't outweigh the costs, people will still insist on taking revenge on those who've harmed them. So you have these examples of what seem like flexibility and rigidity, but in the social domain. Retaliatory punishment might occur in one of two ways. In the first, dubbed familiar equilibrium, victims rigidly punish all theft and thieves flexibly learn who to steal from instead. In the second, which the team refers to as the inverted equilibrium, incorrigible thieves rigidly steal while victims attempt to learn which thefts to punish or not. We wondered under what situations people might adopt one stance or the other. You know, everybody kind of took it for granted that behavior is like initiating aggression, that kind of thing. In that case, people were opportunistic and flexible. But on the other side, on the revenge-seeking side, on the punishing side, they were rigid. And that's what we call the kind of familiar equilibrium, where people on the, the side of harm doers, of stealing or, or aggression, that kind of thing, uh, will opportunistically learn who to steal from and who to not steal from or who to harm and who to not, and, but, but people will be really rigid in their punishment. That's what we think of as like familiar equilibrium. But the insight we had was that there's a kind of alternative equilibrium that could have been possible, or it seems like it could have been possible, which was that uh, it could have been thieves or people who were harm doers that were really rigid and kind of just, you know, stole from anyone and kept stealing from someone. And it, punishers, people on the punishing side who were flexible uh, and kind of flexibly learned to stop punishing people when it seemed like they couldn't learn from it. So like imagine a, a town where there's organized crime that's really entrenched. You can imagine people giving up on punishing them uh, because they're just never going to learn. They're just going to keep stealing from you no, no matter what you do. That's what we call the inverted equilibrium. So one thing you could say from that, right, is look, like, you know, groups that fall into that equilibrium, and it'll just be chaos, right? It'll be totally uh, dysfunctional. And so you would think that kind of off the bat, then that equilibrium would be 
you know, a non-starter in a sense. If the groups that adopt it are going to be totally dysfunctional. And we kind of, we realized that nobody had really tried to adjudicate between these two, right? Everyone had kind of just assumed the former, the familiar equilibrium, and it kind of ignored the possibility of the latter. And so it was an interesting question to us, why does it seem like we're so often in the former case and not the latter case? What, what's the asymmetry there? Part of Adam's study involved a behavioral experiment with a group of 100 participants who played multiple rounds of an online game, either as a thief who could choose whether or not to steal, or as a victim who chose whether or not to punish theft. Adam explains how this game was carried out. You know, at the end of the paper, we have this, you know, an actual uh, experiment with people, right, where we try to show that, in fact, uh, you know, people are rigid in their punishment, but flexible in their you know, in their theft or their harm doing. So what we do is we recruit these people online, right? And we tell them, uh, truthfully, you know, you're uh, you're going to play this game uh, with another, you know, participant uh, online. And so they're, you know, they're sitting there and the screen comes up that says, you know, you're either going to be uh, moving first or moving second in this game. Okay. So what happens for the people who are moving first is uh, everyone's given an endowment of some amount of money, like, you know, let's say a dollar. Uh, and the first person is told, okay, for the next, you know, uh, however many rounds, you're playing with uh, Joe, right? And it's, it's a fake name and they know that and everything. But, and we're like, okay, you have the option to steal from them, basically. We don't use the word steal, but, you know, we give them two options. You either click button A or button B. If you click button A, you get a you know two cents, and Joe loses two cents. Or if you click button B, nothing happens. And then they they do that, and then uh, then uh, Joe has the opportunity to either punish the person or not in response. He pays some small cost, like he loses a cent, uh, in order to take you know to reduce the first person's. Uh, money by five cents or whatever. And so you could imagine people kind of doing this back and forth over and over again. But what we did was we kind of rigged it so that for some critical rounds, people would be playing against a partner whose strategy was chosen in advance. And crucially, the strategy that the person chose uh, was rigid. So for example, a participant would either be playing against someone who always punished theft if they were playing in the thief role, or they were playing against someone who always stole, no matter how much they punished them. And that's that's pretty much the whole experiment. So they do this with a bunch of different people, some of whom have this particular feature where they're rigid, and you we record all their responses against the kind of the different partners. And as we say in the paper, what you find is that when people are playing as thieves against someone who always punishes theft, as you'd expect, they quickly learn to stop stealing from them, right? Like just like the bike thief who learns to stop stealing from Mary when she's chasing him with the crowbar. But in contrast, when people are playing in the role of the uh, person who's being stolen from, even though the other person never stops stealing, they keep the they keep punishing them over and over again, even though it costs them money, right? And there's no indication that it's gonna be helpful at all. So that was kind of the like a basic test that we wanted to see that people are actually seem rigid in their punishment, whereas they're flexible in their theft. It has long been established that opportunistic thieves steal from pushovers who don't punish, but don't steal from victims who retaliate. This established the notion of the familiar equilibrium. Adam's team aimed to focus specifically on the inverted equilibrium. Ryan and I were interested in learning why Adam and his team elected to use the steal-punish game to explore this aspect of retaliatory punishment. 
So we based a lot of our work on this 1995 paper by these guys named Cluttenbrock and Parker. And they were the ones who kind of invented this game. But as far as we could tell, basically after them, people kind of viewed, they were like, oh, Cluttenbrock and Parker kind of solved this, you know? So Cluttenbrock and Parker were the ones who kind of established the existence of that familiar equilibrium. And in this case of, you know, two people interacting like this in a long-term relationship, that was just kind of taken as, well, look, uh, great, that's the answer of why people in individual, in you know, individual long-term relationships, why they punish each other. And so what people largely did was they moved on to kind of tangentially related questions, like punishment in other settings. So for example, altruistic punishment. Why do people, people seem to punish each other even when it's not a long-term relationship, even when you're never gonna see the person again? And that's, that seemed like a much harder question to people. And so kind of the, the field shifted focus to those questions, like the question of why people do it in one-shot cases. Or they focused on the role of punishment in cooperative settings. Yeah, so what was interesting to, you know, one of the kind of appeals of this project to us, I think, was that it was like, look, everyone kind of thought this problem was solved in the case for the, the two people in a long-term relationship by Clutton, Brock, and Parker. But they didn't consider the inverted equilibrium, right? They didn't consider the possibility that it could be thieves who were rigid, but victims who are flexible. And so when you actually incorporate that possibility in there, suddenly things get really complicated. Yeah, so that, that was the sense in which you were using a game that wasn't that is no longer commonly used because it feels like we were kind of going back to an old problem, but realizing that there was a kind of a, a deep problem with the solution that people had, had latched onto and trying to kind of crack it open again. Adam's team recruited participants for this game through Amazon Mechanical Turk, abbreviated Amazon MTurk, an online labor marketplace in which researchers can recruit people to participate in their studies. Since the behavioral experiment in Adam's study used MTurk workers, we wondered what his experience has been with the platform. There's a there's debates about how good it is. I mean, people are worried that um, it's you know it's it's not a representative sample of the population. That's a worry that people have. People also worry that you know the people sitting at their homes doing these studies are super distracted because you can't control what environment they're in. Like maybe they're listening to music, maybe their spouse is talking to them, you know. But it's getting pretty widespread use, definitely for the convenience, but also because, yes, maybe it's not a representative sample, but it's definitely more representative than the, you know, the Psych 101 undergrad students, which compose 95% of all the subjects ever run in psychology experiments. So that's kind of another major advantage of it. So MTurk has is totally revolutionized, at least from my perspective, uh, a lot of a lot of psychology research, basically just because it's unbelievably convenient. <laughs> I mean, you know, in the olden days, right? People would you would think of think of an experiment you wanted to run, and then you would spend the whole semester, you know, running your Psych 101 undergrad students on it. <laughs> And, you know, it would take months. And if you if you were lucky, you know, you got 100 people. And then at the end, you know, and then at the end of the semester, you would finally analyze your data. Uh, and you would realize that, you know, it was totally the wrong experiment to run and it failed miserably. And then you have to go do to redesign it. And this is a lot of what I think I think this is a lot of what led to um, the replication problems that psychology has having. The other half of Adam's study was a computational simulation of the strategies victims should take when both they and thieves are flexible in their decision-making. We were interested in hearing from Adam about how this aspect of his team study worked. 
So in the paper, we use what's called like a, a, the reinforcement learning framework, which is, uh, it's really cool actually. So it started in computer science where these computer scientists were trying to figure out, well, look, if we have a robot that's in some environment and all it can learn from the environment is, all it gets is a signal about whether it did something good or not. We can just give it a reward signal. How can we how can we program the robot to be able to learn what the best things to do in that environment are, given just that kind of sparse signal? Um, and from that developed this whole framework called reinforcement learning, right? Where you can you have these algorithms that you could program a robot uh, to be able to learn from rewards and punishments. And so that's we kind of use that as a model of flexibility. If we're trying to figure out what what can produce the familiar equilibrium, you know, where it's thieves who are flexible versus the um, uh, inverted one where it's punishers who are flexible, it's cool to be able to have an actual model of flexibility. So this kind of started in uh, computer science, but then people had made this amazing discovery that this key variable in the learning algorithm, it's called a prediction error signal. It's not worth explaining what it is, but it's this kind of this, a central part of the algorithm that's computing the prediction error. It turns out that uh, the um, dopamine spikes in a certain part of the brain called the basal ganglia kind of correspond perfectly to what a prediction error signal would look like if the brain were doing reinforcement learning. It was this crazy discovery. It was first done in monkeys where they were recording the actual dopamine neurons, uh, you know, or the, the, the dopamine receptor neurons. And you can see that it looks like if you if you you give a monkey this task, right, where you give it some reward and then you see how much the like the dopamine spikes in this part of the brain. If you try to model that with the these these this particular type of reinforcement learning algorithm, it just looks it's beautiful. It's like the prediction error signal looks exactly like the dopamine spike. So there's this kind of sparked a whole area, a whole field of research on trying to apply reinforcement learning algorithms to understand how people learn from rewards and punishments. It's really, really cool. So, so that's kind of my bread and butter, are reinforcement learning algorithms. And so part of the project was trying to apply these into this evolutionary setting, right? And asking what kind of, you know, would evolution produce kind of intrinsic rewards for something like punishment in order to make it rigid. Adam's team found that when punishment is costly, people tend to find pleasure in punishing theft and do so rigidly. Conversely, when the cost of punishment is negligible, people tend to develop a bias for rigidly stealing. What's surprising about this is that people tend to favor rigid punishment precisely when doing so is costly. Doug and I were eager to learn what Adam thought this suggests about the evolution of punishment in society. Coming to see yourself as really deeply the product of natural selection, you know, in the same way that, that that a monkey is or that a fish is, you know, that has a pretty profound impact on the way you think about your life. You, you, you see yourself react some way to something which just feels so so natural. You know, it's kind of, a, it feels like a law of the universe that like, you know, bad things should get punished. And it's, it's a cool, uh, you know, a cool side effect of it is to really question and be like, Oh wait, is this just the product of my peculiar, the particular ancestral conditions that my, you know, my ancestors found themselves in? You know, I think that uh, I think that helps. Yeah, I think that helps inform us a lot. I mean, one of the reasons that evolutionary psychology is so controversial, right, is because a lot of people feel like applying evolutionary logic to social behavior, to human behavior, will justify it in some way. You know, if people are evolved to punish, then that's just what has to happen, right? There's there's no, you know, that's, there's, that's justification for it. And, and I, while I see the point of that, I guess it also kind of feels the opposite to me in some way. It's like, 
here's this thing that seemed so universal before and now just seems so arbitrary, right? I have these catfish. I have, a, have a, an aquarium at home and these little catfish that swim on the bottom. And like every, you know, 20 minutes or something, they'll, they do this weird thing where they shoot up to the surface of the water and then come right back down. And to them, that must seem so natural, right? Like, you know, every 20 minutes, that's just the thing to do. To us, that seems so silly, right? It's obviously just for whatever reason, a byproduct of the revolution. And to kind of see that in yourself with these things that seem natural, I think, can actually help us, you know, really, uh, yeah, uh, stop the ones that we think are maladaptive. I don't have a good answer for how to actually stop it, but at least identifying where the behaviors come from can't hurt us. Lastly, we were interested in learning what Adam thinks the future holds for the field of cognitive science. Uh, question that I, I wish people asked a lot more when it comes to these kind of, especially social science and especially psychology, is like how far along, how close to the truth do you think we are? You know, when people talk about their work, justifiably, they are really excited about it and they, you know, they think as they should that it really, you know, has brought us a step closer to understanding something deep about people. And I think that's all well and good, but uh, I guess I think that uh, cognitive science in general is really new and really doesn't know anything. <laughs> so here's an example. These these models of flexibility that uh, my co-authors and I used, right, uh, are these these reinforcement learning algorithms, which have this really cool connection to dopamine and the basal ganglia, and there's lots of you know there's lots of reasons people think they do them. But when you actually think about people learning, they just don't look anything like these reinforcement learning algorithms. I mean, maybe you know what, what these what these algorithms do right is they slowly, after getting lots of rewards and punishments, eventually kind of converge on the right behavior for things. And maybe there's some cases where that's a good model of humans. But really, humans seem incredibly flexible. They, they can learn from single instances of things. They can learn uh, in really abstract domains. They just do all these kind of things, which simple reinforcement algorithms, you know, which maybe are good for rats hitting levers, really don't, they really don't capture that kind of unbelievable power and flexibility of human cognition. So, you know, I think the, uh, I like these reinforcement algorithms. They're simple, they're tractable right now. You know, it's, and uh, people clearly do learn from rewards and punishments. And so I think there's real value in studying them, but it just helps me. I kind of like to stay, like, keep, keep our, I like keeping my eye on the prize of actually modeling the, the complexity and flexibility of human cognition. And uh, it's easy to forget that we're, I think we're nowhere near that. That was Adam Morris discussing his paper, Evolution of Flexibility and Rigidity in Retaliatory Punishment, which he published with James McGlashan, Michael Littman, and Fiery Cushman in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org, along with other materials that he discussed during the show. Have you got a tip for parsing science? If so, we'd love to hear from you, like we did from this caller. Hi, this is Irene Brown from Washington, D.C. You guys should check out Scott Alexander's blog, Slate Star Codex. It's about how science affects all of us. It's great. Keep up the good work. You can call us toll-free at 1-844-EXPLORE-IT. That's 1-844-975-6748. Let us know what's on your mind, and we might feature your call in a future show. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Fullerin Kolawali, who'll talk with us about his research into the causes of a 6.5 magnitude earthquake that, in 2017, rocked Moyabana, Botswana. 
though it lies about 300 kilometers from the nearest zone of known active tectonics. The summary of our research is that those faults that were a billion years old, that were formed by compressional stresses, are now being reactivated. We hope that you'll join us again. <laughs>